his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning. The Connecticut Legal Rights Project is a statewide nonprofit providing legal services to low-income individuals with mental health conditions. And this morning we are joined by Kathy Flaherty. She is executive director of the project. Good morning to you. Good morning, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Start by telling us about your mission. Okay, well, you pretty much started by reading our mission, and Connecticut Legal Rights Project was formed in 1990 to provide representation with a priority on representing people who are inpatient at the state-operated psychiatric inpatient facilities. So at the time we were founded, there were three large state institutions, Norwich State and Fairfield Hills have since closed, but we represent people who are at Connecticut Valley Hospital, at Whiting Forensic Hospital, and then three smaller community mental health centers in Bridgeport, New Haven, and Hartford. What sort of cases do you handle for them? Well, for people who are inpatient, what we focus on is advocating for our clients' expressed preferences with a goal towards discharge planning, which is a right that they have under the Connecticut Patients' Bill of Rights, so that people can be in the hospital if they truly need to be, but once they really don't need hospital level of care, getting them back to their lives in the community as expeditiously as possible with the services and supports that they need to stay in the community. Talk about some of the challenges that might be unique to people in in that sort of situation. Well, I think the thing that's particularly tough when people are in state inpatient psychiatric facilities is simply location. I mean, we think of Connecticut as a very small state, um, but transportation for people, especially when they're low income, Yes, you're in Middletown. Yes, it's the center of the state. But if your family is up in Hartford or your family's out in Northeast Connecticut or, you know, Fairfield County, just getting to stay connected to your family and friends can be a challenge. Um, For people who are in Whiting, Whiting is a maximum security forensic hospital. Um, But the people there are patients and they have um, they're entitled to the same rights as every patient in every other psychiatric facility in this state, um, which includes things like having a a legal right to visitors and not having that interfered with. Yet, because it's whiting, it tends to operate more like a correctional facility than a hospital. And I think that's one of the things that I've found that I've had to do uh, a lot of conversation, especially in the last couple of years, is reminding people that Whiting Forensic Hospital is a hospital first Uh, treating patients who have the same legal rights as every other patient in a psychiatric facility. And not everyone who's there has committed a crime. That is absolutely true, and I'm really glad you were the one to say that. Um, There are people who are civil patients in Whiting, which means they have not been convicted. Um, Really, nobody there has been convicted of a crime because some have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, So they have been found to be guilty of that index offense but not criminally responsible. And then you have a whole group of people who are 
being treated to restore their competency to stand trial. So there's been no finding of guilt or innocence because when people are not uh, capable of providing uh, assistance to their attorney in their defense, the court just puts a stop on that case to give people the chance to be restored to competency um, so they can provide assistance to their lawyer and have their case processed. Talk about the the specific cases you handle. I, I'm looking at your annual report. You list housing cases. You list inpatient legal issues. Give us an idea of some of the topics that might come up. Okay. So, like I said, we represent two groups of people. First, the people who are inpatient in all the facilities. So, the kind of issues that come up with that can be things um, that seem as basic as the right to fresh air. Um, if you're in a psychiatric facility, you do have the right to uh, be able to go outside and get fresh air, um, to have your rights respected with regard to medication. There are procedures where people can be medicated involuntarily, but those have a whole lot of due process protections built into that. Um, the right to participate meaningfully in your planning. You know, when you think about uh, health care in general, usually patients are engaged with their clinicians in determining the course of treatment. Um, it, when it comes to psychiatric care, it really should be the same thing and people having the same opportunity to give input um, and meaningful input. And also really the key thing for our clients is discharge planning. What does it take to get the person where they need to be so they, they can be back out in the community rather than in a hospital? Any other health care, hospital stays are as short and some arguably too short, um, but the, it, the idea is not let's keep people locked up in this segregated institution. It's like let's treat them and get them back to their lives. It should be no different when it comes to psychiatric patients. So that's the inpatient part. We also represent people in the community and always have. So when you mentioned housing, there are some people who have difficulty accessing housing. Uh, because they may get turned down because of things that are in their record, whether it's bad credit uh, because they've spent too much when they were symptomatic. Um, it could be because they've been evicted from previous apartments. But people with disabilities are entitled to reasonable accommodations, which means the usual decision would be a no, but because, to give them an equal opportunity to enjoy the housing, which is what the standard is in the law, um, it's a request to that landlord or that housing provider to overlook what would have been a negative and give them the opportunity to succeed in the housing. And some people who are running into difficulties when they're in an apartment and maybe are disturbing their neighbors because their um, behavior that's related to their disability bothers other people, get threatened with eviction and losing their housing, uh, we represent them to, again, request reasonable accommodations. So. A lot of the housing work is making sure that we protect people's right to both get into housing and to stay in their housing because when people have stable housing, they're able to recover. You know, I know for me personally, I'm a person living in recovery from a mental health diagnosis. One of the reasons I was able to do that is because I had the privilege of never having to worry about having a roof over my head or food on the table or having my other basic needs met. I was able to concentrate um, on and focus on my recovery. I imagine when you have people who have to deal with trying to figure out how to handle those basic needs, that could exacerbate their condition. It absolutely does. I think enough people don't appreciate the trauma of everyday life as a poor person in Connecticut, especially with our particularly high cost of living. Um, and 
not always having access to as many of the services and supports that they need. Um, I think one of the things that's really a challenge, you sometimes hear other advocates talk about, well, we need to treat people before it gets to stage four. When we talk about that, what we have to remember is that that's talking about the legal standard that needs to be met when you're forcing care on somebody. Um, The law says that you cannot involuntarily commit somebody or you can't involuntarily medicate somebody unless you meet a legal standard. There is nothing saying that anybody can't engage with the mental health service system at any point they want. The problem is, is that when you have people who voluntarily want to engage with the system, there are waiting lists, you know, there's intakes that need to be gone through. There's a lack of providers uh, because of the problems with the workforce. So I think we have to be careful when we're having those discussions, even as mental health advocates. Well, what are we talking about? I think what we need is a adequately resourced, community-based system of care with the funding it needs so that people who want services can get them and get access to them in a timely fashion. This system has really turned into a crisis response system. And when anybody is always reacting rather than doing something proactively, it tends not to be as good as it could be. And I'm guessing it costs less to assist someone at stage one than stage four. Usually. And I mean, that's why we have some really exciting developments and a couple of us were talking at a meeting this morning in our office. Uh, One of the really exciting uh, wins in the last legislative session was funding under the Department of Social Services budget for what they are calling CHESS, which stands for Connecticut Housing Engagement and Support Services. It's supportive housing for people who are not getting what they currently need out of the system, so keep going to the most expensive things like showing up at your emergency rooms, um, perhaps ending up homeless and in the shelter system. Um, But having that funding available through Medicaid to pay for the supportive housing services so that people can have services and supports available because even when we're able to get the additional funding for housing vouchers, you also need those wraparound services. And if there's a way when you people get the services and supports they need, then they're able to just move on with their life. And I think a lot of people uh, don't always realize that when people don't get those, they end up showing up at our emergency rooms or they end up in the hospital. And the amount of money this state pays on keeping people, especially uh, institutionalized and segregated at a place like CVH, when there are folks there who could uh, live well and perhaps even thrive in the community, but because there isn't affordable housing for them, because the supportive services aren't available, um, they're stuck. And that's part of what our class action lawsuit is trying to resolve. It must be what? Probably coming on three decades since Norwich State Hospital closed. Are you still seeing the effects of that, people in the community not getting the services they need? Well, you have to remember, um, when the large state hospitals closed, there was a promise made. We will save the money that we are, or we will reinvest the money that we're saving from not spending on these large state institutions in the community-based system of care. That promise has never been kept. Um, Had it been kept going back decades um, and continuing on now, I think it's 
quite likely that we could have had the system that Connecticut really needs. Um, I think uh, people have to remember that whenever I say anything about our system, I hear from the people who are not happy with the system. People don't call a lawyer if they're happy with everything that's going on in their life. Um, Demas serves a lot of people every year, and there are a lot of people who are satisfied with what they're getting. Um, they're concerned and they fight so hard for the funding because they want to keep getting those services. Um, but I hear from the people, our office hears from the people who are not getting what they need out of the system. Um, and so that's my role. <laughs> you are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Kathy Flaherty, Executive Director of the Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Where does your funding come from? Our funding comes from three major sources. Um, we get funding uh, on a line item in the Connecticut state budget. Uh, it's called Demas Legal Services. And so for people who don't know, when they see that in the Demas part of the budget, that is not legal services for the department itself. The department is represented by the attorney general's office. It's legal services for people who are Demas eligible. So that's legal services for our clients. Um, so we get funding through there. We are a uh, legal aid agency, so we get aid funding through the IOLTA, the courts, fees, grant and aid, judicial branch grant and aid, just like the other legal services programs. So the Connecticut Bar Foundation administers that. Um, we also get some additional money from the state to provide representation specifically in housing cases. Um, and then, of course, just support from the public, you know, um, whether that is foundations, community foundations. We've gotten funding from uh, the Impact Fund to, that has funded our class action litigation. We're currently working with uh, CHRO on a HUD partnership grant through the Housing and Urban Development on fair housing rights for people with psychiatric disabilities. Um, so we're looking forward to that project moving forward this year. And then, of course, people are always welcome to make donations and can visit our website, clrp.org. It seems like it's a pretty specialized legal field. Do you mainly do work in-house or do you work with outside law firms? We do uh, partner with outside law firms on some of the cases that we're involved in, um, whether that is local counsel here in Connecticut or people at national organizations like the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, um, which helps us uh, conceptualize and think through um, strategies for what we're doing. Uh, we have had individual attorneys volunteer with our office either to assist in representation of clients but more often work on research projects for us because sometimes there are things that we really need to uh, do a more in-depth dive on, but our folks just simply don't have the time because it's a constant influx of people seeking our assistance. So very much appreciate uh, those attorneys who've given their time to us in that way. You talked about some of the things you do. Uh, what are some things that you don't do that maybe people call and think you do? Okay. Some of the things that we don't do is even though we are a legal services agency, uh, we do not uh, represent clients in individual advocacy on problems they're having with the Department of Social Services about benefits from the Department of Social Services. So whether that's the SNAP, um, sub Supplemental Nutritional Assistance or Food Stamps, whether it's really their Medicaid benefits in and of itself, their eligibility, we don't do those kind of cases. We don't do family. You know, it, it is very clear that uh, for a lot of folks, sometimes 
living with a mental health condition interferes with their ability to uh, parent or be in a relationship or be in a marriage um, with other people, but we don't have the capacity to do family cases. Um, We have at times worked on big policy issues and policy discussions and have in the past been engaged with you know, the office uh, uh, at DOJ and with DCF and the child advocate on making sure that parents with mental health disabilities are having their rights uh, to reasonable accommodations from DCF if DCF is proceeding against them protected. But we don't represent individual clients in those cases. You talked about one legislative win. What else was on your radar last session, and what are you looking forward to in 2020? Well, I think a lot of times for those of us in mental health, a lot of our time is spent playing defense and making sure that, especially in budget years, protecting uh, those state investments in the system. Uh, so fighting for DEMIS funding, fighting for, even though we don't do the representation, fight making sure DSS is adequately funded. Um, So fighting off things like uh, imposition of work requirements in Medicaid, uh, you know, or or in in food stamps, because the reality is, is a lot of people on those benefits are already working. If you impose things like work requirements, it requires um, additional bureaucracy for those uh, just justifying the paperwork. Um, And I love the Department of Social Services, but they've experienced problems at times processing all that paperwork and giving them a whole other level to process where you're not really going to change things. Um, And what they're finding in other states is when you impose things like work requirements, what it results in is people losing access to health care. And that's not good. Um, I think one of the things that we would have liked to have seen is more in terms of some of the clean slate legislation that was moving. Um, A lot of folks with mental health conditions end up interacting with the criminal legal system. Uh, So just the fact that some of those conversations are happening, um, even if bills didn't get passed, um, you know, obviously we passed a minimum wage, but one of the bills that was pending that didn't get out of committee was ending sub-minimum wage for people with disabilities. I think it's, you know, even though CLRP sits at that intersection of mental health and the law, Overall, we look at the things for people who are poor, because those are our clients, people with other disabilities, because a lot of our clients have co-occurring conditions. So it's really looking at those big systems issues. In terms of things that we're looking for for next session, um, on my wish list includes some significant reforms to the probate court system, uh, to the Psychiatric Security Review Board uh, system, um, especially giving things that will make it easier for our clients to be in the community and contribute and live in our 169 cities and towns and be part of Connecticut because they are part of our community. They always have been. Um, They're particularly marginalized and that really shouldn't be. And the reality is, is when you talk about people living with mental health conditions, you know, it's one out of four to one out of five of us. Um, You know, I'm somebody who's been institutionalized for two months, you know, and it's not two months is nothing like uh, much longer and years. But part of the reason that this work is so important to me is because I've lived a lot of that and had a lot of those experiences. The issue of mental health often comes up in the aftermath of mass shootings. Talk about some of the, the stigma there. And is it right to bring up that issue? In my opinion, it's not. 
I understand why people do. I have written about this several times um, because when an event like that happens, I think all of us are looking to explain the unexplainable. And the very facile response would be, somebody's got to be crazy to do something like that. Um, Nobody in their right mind would do something like that. Um, They'd have to be insane to do something like that, Um, which means that when people want to address these various incidents, um, instead of looking at evidence-based strategies to effectively reduce gun violence and look at factors that are actually in the evidence linked to the perpetration of gun violence, um, it's really easy to distract and deflect by talking about people with mental health conditions. Uh, we're not politically popular. We just I don't think we really ever have been. Um, but it, it's easy to look for a scapegoat. It's easy to look for something to blame um, because we don't want to look at ourselves in the mirror. We don't want to look at uh, the fact that people who've perpetrated violence before are more likely to perpetrate violence again. Uh, people who abuse substances are more likely to um, commit violence. People... Uh, you know, who are men, who are young, white, angry men, uh, tend to perpetrate a lot of this violence. And we don't at all talk about guns and suicide at all. Um, And when you look at things like the extreme risk protection orders, Connecticut's law has been found to prevent suicides. There's no evidence it does anything in terms of mass violence. What it, but what it does is that if somebody is really a clear and present danger to either themselves or others um, and, you know, the law enforcement brings that risk warrant application to a judge, then the guns can be taken. And for me personally, if I had access to a gun um, at the five worst moments of my life, we probably would not be talking today. I didn't. Um, but I also think that it's important to recognize that having a mental health diagnosis makes you no more likely, in fact, even less likely to go out and perpetrate violence. And I'm sure you've heard that we're more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators, and that even if you dealt with all the uh, mass violence that's attributable to people with mental health conditions, you get rid of 4% of it. So when people talk about locking people up, um, when people talk about monitoring us, how, you know, or putting us on lists or registries, um, even if you took all of us out of the equation, you still got 96% left. And so it just doesn't make sense. If someone is listening to this and says, well, I am low income and I have mental health issues and I need legal help, how can they get that help? They can call us. Our number is one 877-402-2299. People can also visit our website, www.clrp.org. Um, and, you know, we have intake hours at certain times of the day, but people can always leave us a message and we will get back to them. And with that in mind, I, I understand that hours had to be cut because of funding issues and You're always looking for donations, correct? We always are, and they can be made through our website. I think we are still feeling the long-term impact of what happened to us in 2017 when we had to lay off almost half our staff uh, due to funding cuts. And we 
reorganized, we re-strategized about the most effective way that we can deal with the really significant issues that our clients face. Um, that's why you see us litigating a lot more in court, you know, trying to do uh, the class action litigation. Uh, even with our reduced resources, we have to figure out a way to s- address some of these systemic problems. She is Kathy Flaherty, Executive Director of the Connecticut Legal Rights Project. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.